Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, guest host Roman James interviews feminist lawyer, human rights activist, political philosopher, columnist, and author Rafia Zakaria about her newly released book, Against White Feminism, Notes on Disruption. Roman speaks with Rafia about the historic domination of the feminist lexicon by upper-middle-class white women, the decentering of black and brown voices, and the role that patriarchy plays in perpetuating white supremacist, capitalist, imperialist feminism, which often subjugates the very populations it asserts to be empowering. Welcome, Rafia. Welcome, Roman. Hi. Hi, Terry. Hi, Rafia. So excited to be talking to you today. So today I know that Roman is going to be um, taking the lead in the bulk of the conversation, but I wanted to start Rafia with just the title <laughs> because against white feminism, what I was uh, wondering is why you didn't put white feminism in quotes because white feminism to me isn't feminism. And so it really gives them too much credit to even call it that. And that's kind of a little bit of what ultimately you're trying to say in your book, I believe. Yes. And the title Against White Feminism, I I definitely sympathize and agree with your point regarding, you know, the quality of white feminism and whether it can even be called feminism. But, you know, my project in the book was to take some very complicated entanglements between whiteness and feminism. So, you know, the racial privilege attached to being white and how that privilege plays, you know, in the feminist conversation to the extent that it, that it exists such that, you know, the white woman is the woman and she's the feminist. And the example that I give is one, for instance, like, I looked at a Glamour article from like 15 years ago or so, uh, written by Eve Ensler, who is the author of The Vagina Monologues. And this article, in this article, she was talking about her visit to Congo and uh, talking to rape survivors, you know, of war rape in Congo, then DRC, you know, DRC. But the article essentially puts Eve Ansler, her feelings, her experiences at the center of the conversation so that the suffering of the women that she encounters almost only exists to highlight her virtue as the savior that's going down to, you know, talk to these women and quote unquote, bring awareness, uh, etc. And, you know, that example, and you can see that if you, you you know, if you pick up a magazine today, you can see, uh, you know, this hasn't stopped. This is the way of writing. The reason why it's a problem is because most people don't even see it. Like, we're so used to 
the white woman's experience being centered and the white woman's perspective as the perspective that dominates uh, the feminist conversation that we that that women, even women of color, they, they don't see it. And the problem is that if you don't see it, you can't critique it. And it's just sort of taken for granted that that will be the person. So, so, you know, if you or I want to write an article like that, want to write, you know, a, a feature for a magazine, we are expected to then be take on that sort of white role. And that is what the problem is, is that there is a conflation between whiteness and feminisms to, to the extent that, you know, and, and which is why I understand why people balk at the term feminist altogether is because whiteness and white supremacy and racial privilege are so entangled with, you know, white or mainstream feminism at the moment that it's almost like you can't tell whether to join the feminist club, you have to act white and be white and have white concerns. So that's what I was getting at in in the title of the book is that I really want people to be able, women in particular, to be able to quote unquote see whiteness, you know, where it's not like the the uncritiqued, unchallenged, you know, perspective that has to govern all of us and all of feminism. If I can just talk to you about all of the rich contextualizing that you just gave, because I remember that article about Eve Ensler or that Eve Ensler uh, authored. And I remember thinking it was very patronizing. Um, and I've felt for many years, because I'm, an, I'm a performer and an artist as well, that Eve Ensler is problematic for a number of reasons. That being said, as a survivor myself, I have had opportunities to engage with agencies that are white-led, whereas the women who are working as um, advocates are oftentimes women of color. And there's a disconnect between the people who are at the ground level seeing and hearing the stories of these women and their lived experience and what the policy that's being made and propagated by the white leadership. There's a disconnect. And when I read Against White Feminism, it just perfectly captured what women of color have long experienced when engaging in spaces that are white women led and not having our experiences be understood, let alone seen and heard, because oftentimes we are diminished in these spaces. And so one of the things that I wanted to know as a, a fellow survivor, is what galvanized you or radicalized you into feminism? Because your background as a Muslim Pakistani immigrant woman doesn't necessarily scream feminist. Well, I mean, it doesn't scream feminist because feminist, as you know, as we we're talking about, has been feminist qualities are qualities that 
you know, white women have devised. So, you know, it's always rebellion. It's never resilience. It's always exit. So you leave uh, rather than staying and making things better. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of qualities, uh, I think, that, that Pakistani women have that are, you know, that are essentially ones that are not considered feminist because they're, they're, they're not white qualities, so to speak, right? So in that sense, I feel that my radicalization happened not instantly, but in, in stages. But one of the sort of the, the fire was lit, I believe, you know, when I had to leave an abusive relationship myself. And uh, suddenly I came into contact uh, with a shelter system and had to navigate through the legal system. Uh, you know, even though I was a law student at the time, like, I mean, you know, I didn't actually know family law. I hadn't, hadn't graduated or anything. So, so just c- coming into contact with those institutions made me see just how my role was always within a conversation, uh, was always like as uh, the testimonial of trauma. So, right. So it's like my traumatic story is what I was supposed to supply. But then what was to be done with it, uh, how it was to be framed, all of the, you know, aspects of, of power over it were held by, you know, a structure and that was largely white and white and female within even the domestic violence space. So that, and, and then of course, like a legal system where I was just looked at as, well, you know, these brown people, like they're always like doing this to their women. And so, you know, <laughs> so, so I mean, it's, it, it, it's kind of this diffident attitude. It's uh, as in, it's not shocking that this has happened to you. Those were, you know, stages. I mean, I would say the most recent thing was, is the fact that, you know, I've been, it's, it's been 19 years, 18 years since, you know, I left that abusive relationship and started working in this area. And I still feel that we're fighting the same battles and having the same conversation. So it was like a deep, deep frustration with that, a deep, frustration that my daughter is going to deal with like the same problems and issues that I dealt with. And what does that even say about, about where the feminist movement is or, or its value or worth in bringing about actual change? So all of those questions were really nagging ones. I also wanted very, very much to provide, you know, women of color in particular, but all women, with the vocabulary that allows them to dissect these experiences that you mentioned that everybody is having, you know, women of color are having every day in different forms, but that they have not yet been able to put in a cohesive whole. So, which of course, like leaves them vulnerable to gaslighting and to erasure. Your book is titled... Against White Feminism, Notes on Disruption. I wanted to ask your perspective, your thought on the fact that women of color are always tasked with being disruptors because in in this American system, 
The Constitution was not written with us in mind. But to that same extent, the Constitution was not written with even white women in mind. And I want to know, when are they going to get the memo? When are they going to recognize, as you talk about in your, your, your book in chapter two, A Solidarity, A Lie, like when are they going to recognize that our plight is their plight? I think a number of different things have to happen before that, that we, we get to that place. I agree. I mean, I really share your frustration with uh, this, you know, this sort of implicit expectation that women of color are going to be uh, the disruptors always, but then also kind of a derision of women of color for being disruptive and for being angry and for questioning the system, almost like in its worst iterations, it's kind of like, oh, well, of course, like she's going to say that she's black or she's brown or she's South Asian. And I get that all the time. And it's a way of essentially of excluding them from the feminist conversation where, you know, they're not calm and level-headed enough to share power with white men, which is where white women are today, right? I mean, they're the ones, I mean, I, I looked at a statistic from Deloitte that said that white women are the gender and the race that have been, that has been category that has been expanding in the boards of Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 companies. So it's like we're not qualified to really, the implicit bias is that we're not qualified to belong to that, to the big guys. So like you said, the people who make policy. And I think that in terms of when they will get the memo, I'll tell you, I mean, I'll give you an example of how <laughs> this played out. I mean, you know, I, I tell the story uh, in the book of this big, the big World's Fair from 1893. And this fair is important in 1893 because it's being held in Chicago and it's going to showcase uh, it, it, its idea was to showcase all the achievements that Americans had had made, and 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 quite literally the and unironically the central one was the white city. And by the white city, they meant you know a city that was like a like a city that they had built within you know the fairgrounds that showcased electricity and all its wonder and what it was gonna how it was gonna change the world and. <laughs> and of course, this white city was also actually a white city in that black people were left out by and large, even from being employed at, at this fair. But I bring it up because one of the things that happened at this fair was that, you know, it was decided that women should also have a role and also have, you know, representation at this fair. And so they set up like a board, a board that would uh, essentially be in charge of this huge structure called the women's building that was going to be erected. And that was going to show all the achievements of quote American women. And so then uh, in 18, or this is before, you know, they were, they were prep planning in like 1892 or 1891, even uh, this board of lady managers met and it's of course all white women and their task is going to be decide to dis decide what are the achievements of American women and which women even qualify as American women? 
and the big squabble ended up being like between Bertha Palmer, who's like this Melinda Gates type married to a super, super wealthy guy. And this other white woman who was working class and who had sort of was very invested in the suffrage movement. And I just point this out to you because ultimately there was, I believe, one, this is, this is a, a building of thousands and thousands of exhibits from everything from fine art to craft to uh, writing. And in this building, ultimately what these main lady managers said was that they had one case of some things that was called the Afro-American exhibit. And that's it. No other women were good enough to be included. And the reason I point that out is, is that that is what's still happening. I have been on boards of organizations dealing with women's rights where, so, okay, now we've made the the jump that, you know, back in 1893, there were no people of color at all on boards. Now I was the only woman of color on this very prestigious board. And I would like stand, you know, bring in a motion that would uh, say, work on, like you said, women of color face uh, within institutions. And everybody would like act super supportive of me and talk about how great the idea was and everything. And then I would go out, come out to a vote uh, or, you know, a, a discussion and then ultimately a vote. And none of the white women, and they were almost a majority on that board, would vote for it. None of them would support it. And then again, they would like write me texts or private messages where they would say, you know, I, th I think you did a really good job articulating that. And, you know, I, and I really support you. I just couldn't for blah, blah, blah. And that's the situation still today. So if you look at 1893 and you look at now and the fact that we're, you know, women of color in this country are still fighting for being recognized and still, you know, do fighting the same war. Well, then, you know, the memo has to be sort of presented in this very blunt way. And that is what I'm trying to do in the book. It's like a very blunt memo to white women that, listen, man, like there's a huge problem. And the reason a lot of women are just exiting out of feminism as a whole or consider themselves more uh, better placed in high, you know, like a, in, in their own uh, sort of subgroup, whether it's Muslim feminists or, you know, uh, black feminists or whatever subgroup, brown, you know, different iterations of that. And so there's like a huge bleed out, you know, so that as I see it, the feminist movement right now is on life support. And if it is resuscitated, the only way it can have relevance to our society that's changing so fast, but that, you know, still has white women on all the boards making all the decisions uh, and not interested in sharing, let alone seeding any space, you continue to have the same problem. So it's like, there's Black History Month and Women's History Month and this and that. But our work, like as women of color, and I still worry about that with this book, is still at the margins. It's, it's, it's still sort of 
being denied entry. It's still not really part of the conversation as, you know, as, as the sort of now white liberal celebrity feminists have determined feminism to be. To your point, you have a chapter called, which I love the, the title of this chapter, In the Beginning, There Were White Women. When I was reading that chapter, the story of ESPN's reporter, Maria Taylor, came out. Now, this had taken place a while ago. Apparently, the, the recording, the audio recording that was released had been taped like a year ago. But it surfaced somehow. And now we are dealing with Rachel Nichols, who in the Oppression Olympics was racing to the bottom by saying that, well, you know, they're trying to put forth this image that they are, what's the word? They're diverse. They're inclusive. And that's the only reason why Maria Taylor who was a college basketball athlete who has known this space from the beginning of her career for the reason why she received the role in this particular sports job. So how do we, how do we manage that? Because as you said, it just keeps coming up over and over again. That's a great question. And I actually wrote about Maria, the Rachel Nichols and Maria Taylor controversy, simply because, in my view, it is such an illustration of exactly what I'm saying in the book, which is that you hear you had a white woman who I don't doubt the fact that she broke glass ceilings, etc., but here's a white woman who's kind of followed this career path that a lot of them follow, you know, internships, good college, and then more into, you know, in elite media internships, and then ultimately to ESPN. And so her idea is, is that I have won this spot. Like I have fought for this spot and I have broken the barriers. And so I am entitled to this this place. And there isn't any kind of examination of how her race has played a part in her, you know, getting to where she is. And then you have, you know, Mariah Taylor, who was given her spot, Rachel Nichols' spot. And here you have this video, I mean, this audio tape that you know, was like you said, was a conversation from last year that was now sort of became public. And you have her saying that, oh, well, this is my thing. This is my thing. And, you know, they're doing like this whole diversity thing right now. And that's why she got it. So if a white woman gets somewhere, it's because entirely because of her hard work and, you know, her intrepid spirit. But if a black woman tries to get, or, you know, get to the same level, she's just a diversity hire. And so, i.e., not really or not really having won that spot on the basis of fair competition. And these assumptions and the fact that uh, Rachel Nichols 
said all of these things and said, oh, this is my thing. and She's a diversity hire for because of this moment. The fact that that's not considered racist in our society is why it keeps coming up again and again. It keeps coming up again and again because we, like white people, uh, not we, but like, do not consider perspectives like this to be racist. And it happens again and again and again. I was told by a prominent white feminist who had in- included me, this is a while ago, in a notable you know, a list of authors, female authors, that, oh, well, you know, I really tried very hard so that women of color would be a majority on this list. And, you know, you hear stuff like that, and it's like getting a kick in the gut because here, okay, finally, you're getting some semblance of uh, inclusivity, et cetera. And then you immediately also get the, the thing, oh, well, you know, you were really included because this is what I'm trying to do suggesting that if it was just done like fair and square, which, you know, is interpreted as not paying attention to race, then you you wouldn't be on there. And and so you get this dynamic replicated again and again and again. But unless we start calling it out, unless we start, you know, saying that holding these kinds of views where you imagine that, you know, every person of color or woman of color in particular who makes it is only there because she's a diversity hire or she's the token brown person or black person. That is in itself a racist supposition, you know, and it also confirms what I feel is the bra- the greatest paranoia that women of color have. The The greatest paranoia, at least for me, is that, okay, well, this woman is very woke and She's all into intersectional feminism, and she's very much on board with uh, gender equality, gender parity, critique of existing power structures. But then, you know, when she's alone or when she's just talking to white people, all of that falls away. And she says what she really thinks, which is that she got there fair and square. And then, you know, the Mariah Taylors of the world are just interlopers that are sort of pushing. So, so it confirms your worst paranoia. And the consequence of that is, of course, that a lot of women I know, young women especially, are not interested in feminists, in feminism anymore. Because, like, the, feminism is not, as it exists, giving them an answer to this problem that they experience everywhere in their lives. So, Rafia, what I really loved about your book, because when I saw the title, I thought, ooh, (laughs) she (laughs) is about to burn down the feminist house that Jill built. But what I love so much about it is that for me, who is newly engaging and understanding feminist theology is that you are great with defining feminist precepts and contextualizing the nuance of white feminism without being overly academic or theoretical. Someone like myself needs to be able to 
sit down, understand the issues that have been quantified without feeling like it's going over my head. And I think that starting with your own personal story was what lured me into the door. But what kept me there is the numerous examples of what is happening right now, today, just a year ago, that have been going on since colonialism. Like, how did you discover all of this history? That was incredible to me. Oh, well, first of all, that is like the best, that is the best compliment I could get because I wanted to distill all of these arguments and these larger critiques to a very accessible level. And I thought of myself, you know, like what book would I have read at at age 23 when I was living, I was staying at a shelter and I didn't know where my life was going to go and I didn't have any money and I didn't have any family in the country to support me. Like what would I have read that would have helped me understand my position in this world and what needed to be done for feminists, you know, essentially for feminism's feminism to get its fangs back. Uh, because what I believe we have now is this defanged feminism that's, you know, it's, it's Nike uses it to sell shoes and, you know, all of these other capitalist enterprises exist around it so that it's just this economic idea. But, but really in terms of accessibility, like I said, it's my own story. I was in a very, very difficult position and I almost had no help. And even at that time, I was in law school. I'll never forget that this white woman professor told me to quit. She was like, there's no way you're going to get through this with a baby and, you know, without any money and without any support. And I said, you don't understand. This degree is my way out of, of this situation. So, you know, of an abusive, abusive relationship. So that wall of just kind of like, you don't really belong here because you're poor. You're, you know, you don't have enough money. You've had this baby at such an early age. And obviously you come from this other culture. So. And, and that culture is repressive. So you're, you're that, that's why you are the way you are. And I wanted to tell a different story about myself. And there was just no room to tell that story. Or the niche that exists to tell that story is essentially a niche in which valorizes white and Western ideas and cultures. So, you know, I could tell the story of how I was oppressed and repressed in Pakistan and in Islam and this and that. But I couldn't tell the story of how we have a family court system in which I, who had escaped a very abusive situation, was still expected to show up every other weekend to exchange, you know, visitation and, and, and give visitation to my abuser and forced into proximity with that person, right? So I couldn't talk about that. And I couldn't talk about a, a lot of these other aspects of of my life, which I felt were were not at all about where I'd come from, but about where I was. So I think that I wanted to show how 
essentially a framework has been created of culturally coded crimes and intimate partner violence, right? So for instance, honor killing is a culturally coded crime because it's imagined to only happen in brown cultures, in black cultures around the world, Muslim, Middle East, etc. And, you know, you have intimate partner violence, which is what happens in the United States or in the white and Western world. But it's imagined to be an entirely separate category from these other crimes. So essentially, it was, if I wanted to belong to the feminist club, I had to demean my own culture as inherently bad for women, while white culture was assumed to be inherently good for women. And the truth is, is that there isn't a difference between the two, other than the label provided by it. A man who butchers his wife in Pakistan, that can be framed as an honor crime, but a man who butchers his wife or his girlfriend in the United States is, an, is doing intimate partner violence. You have women in places like the United States, you know, who essentially are told these stories of women from other cultures that are repressive. And those stories are taken as a testament that, you know, women within the white and Western world have it so good. When the reality is, is that one of the most recent surveys I, sh- I saw sh- said that three out of four women experience physical violence from their intimate partner. But white women themselves are kept, are never sort of allowed to absorb that because their culture is juxtaposed against all these other cultures that are, you know, Pakistani, Indian, what have you, brown and black cultures that treat women poorly. So the idea is, is that, well, at least honor killings aren't happening in my culture. At least I don't have to worry about my father killing me. When the truth is, is that fathers, husbands, boyfriends kill women in America all the time. And to the extent that that is one of the top, you know, homicide is one of the top causes of death for women under 35. So the point is, is that, you know, we've created this uh, bifurcation between the things that black and brown men do to their women. And those are the bad things because those people are from a bad culture. And even that those women have not been strong enough to uh, actually liberate themselves. And the converse idea is that white women have been able to liberate themselves and therefore they don't, you know, their culture is good. White and Western culture is inherently friendly to feminism and to women is the premise. And that premise is is just deluded because I have a Google alert on my computer uh, that is for women that are being killed by their partners. And I'll tell you that there are tens of them that happen on every single day in the United States. So bringing all of that together, 
and revealing how uh, these bifurcations are created to keep women apart was very, very crucial to my mission. And ultimately, I wanted anyone who is interested in feminism to be able to pick up the book and understand what it's about. And even if you're not interested in feminism, even if you're just interested, for instance, in how whiteness infiltrates and corrupts and corrodes society, you can pick up the book and it will provide you with an account to that. But yes, it had to, I had to bring so together a lot of different parts of my experience and, and my own struggle in trying to understand why we are not moving forward and why we are still being butchered by men, why whiteness still prescribes that certain group of women are lucky while the others are not, and one is liberated and well, the other is not. Let me pose this question because I, I'm in conversations all the time, uh, especially in the social justice and <coughs> advocacy spaces, gender justice advocacy spaces, where there's definitely a rhetoric around being anti-racist. Obviously, since last year and the cultural moment that we've been experiencing an awakening around racism in this country, there's been a lot of cultural production that's been dedicated to this space. And so in those gender-oriented spaces, I always add, whether it's in advocacy or in the media, where there's articles that deal with intersectionality, I always point out the intersectionality, even if their emphasis is on the race. And that always gets shot down. So I'll be in gender spaces and I'll say, can we also be anti-sexist? Can we also add policy about being anti-sexist in XYZ ways? And they'll be like, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about anti-racism. And so to that extent, I wanted to ask because how has the conversation around race not been intersectional enough to actually bring us together? And has it created or reinforced divides and tribalism? Can I ask you, like, are these anti-racist spaces that you're talking about ones that are largely people of color, women of color, so they're white? I wouldn't say they're largely white. They're a mix, but there's certainly white sensibilities and double standards when it comes to who can speak and whose voices are valued more. They are mixed, but even the women of color, because they're in spaces where a lot of these individuals personally benefit from institutional funding and you know allegiances, they're not either free to or inspired to speak out against systems and structures that I find problematic. And so I, uh, I find myself getting cast as, as like the instigator, the agitator, when I'm challenging these processes and structures. Um, and especially around, I just want to add, especially around the conversation with regard to quote unquote, restorative justice, which has been a very big problem, in my opinion, in the domestic violence movement, where it's not supposed to be coercive, but people 
who work with survivors are using terms like, how can we get them to try this? <laughs> Instead of putting their black and brown partners in jail, they don't want their the men to be further victimized by the racist law enforcement and policing structures. Meanwhile, women and women of color are thrown under the bus. Well, that's a very interesting dynamic and sadly a common one that that's been pointed out. And I'm going to almost like try to think through this with you uh, in terms of the example that you just mentioned. One of the things that I've noticed is that one way in which women of color are disempowered, survivors in general are disempowered, is through this the institutionalization of various causes. Because institutions are controlled by whiteness and they're controlled by whiteness, but by by and large, by white policymakers. And and once that issue is within the institution, it's almost like it's tamed and its radical potential is obliterated because the idea is, is that, okay, we have frameworks and spaces and compartments in which to put all your gripes, you know, whether the racist gripe goes here and then, you know, later on we'll talk about, but in particular with white women, and conversations of sexism, I do see a problem in that within the conversations that are just about gender and sexism, white women feel quite entitled to occupy all of the space, right? Because they're out saying, well, I'm the one being victimized over here. And then within the gender conversation, they still occupy some of the space because they've positioned themselves as the people who are going to bring about the change, right? Because I mean, like, what can powerless people do? And there are problems, huge problems, with obviously, with both of these assumptions. But there, I, I guess I, what I want to say is that I caution against institutionalization and the NGOization of causes and of issues. And the reason for that is simple. Uh, the reason for that is that if women truly, particularly women of color, truly want to protect their rights, they have to engage in a political struggle. They have to acknowledge and recognize the political implications of their decisions, their everyday decisions even. I think that within these spaces, there is an effort to NGOize, you know, what was a movement that erupted around George Floyd and that has had a transformative impact on American society, there's an attempt to NGOize it so that it's politically defanged, right? Where everybody can participate in it, whatever your politics. But the thing is, you cannot say whatever your politics. Your politics are crucial, absolutely crucial to whether any of the gains made by women of color, for instance, can persist. Because, you know, they're given an inch, and but if you don't have political power, you can't protect the advance that you've made. So I think, I mean, I would urge you to bring that up within these conversations because, you know, as I see it, the NGOization of these concerns, you know, it slots, uh, okay, black women, brown women, you tell the story, right? And then the white woman president of the board or whoever will show up and then she'll present the policy agenda. 
that is a fail recipe. That is a racist dynamic. And until we start calling it out for what it is, and also recognizing that the antidote to it is political, it's not you know, this kind of let's have this program and it'll t- tell these kids this and then they'll not be racist and, and stuff like that. That's not going to solve this problem because it's essentially, it's a way of compartmentalizing it and putting it away so that I've checked this box. I've done this for anti-racism. I did this for anti-sexism. How do I get ahead with these sorts of uh, badges of virtue on me? I mean, that's the thing, right, is that for black and brown people who are engaging in the anti-racist movement, the issue is about survival. Like, how are you, you and your kids, how are you going to survive a white world? But for white people, there is an instant commodification of that interaction where, you know, a white woman interacting with a black woman, if she can use that as content production, which then affirms her superior virtue, the fact that, okay, she's doing something about this. So in that sense, even those interactions that are almost, they're already commodified in that white people are getting a different and an inchoate product from it than black and brown people. And the way this plays out, the problem is that, so, you know, it's like, okay, we're doing anti-racist work and black and brown communities are going to be direct beneficiaries, et cetera, et cetera. But look at this amazing white woman. She's just doing it out of the goodness of her heart. She's so good. She wants racial justice and gender equality. And the reason why that narrative exists is because we don't point out the fact that virtue signaling, commodifying your interactions with the with people with lesser power, that all of those things are things they're getting out of it. Just because we are not pointing that out, the other side continues to get the benefit of presenting a selfless image of uh, of white virtue, you know, the inherent goodness of whiteness, uh, which is so invested even in this way in equalizing the dynamics between between races. I do want to ask a question, but I want to preface it by this statement. Rafia, you are this amazing multi-hyphenate feminist rock star in your own right. <laughs> but now you have been elevated to the pantheon of feminist gods by the Chicago Review of Books, stating that you are right up there with Angela Davis and Audrey Lorde. And I want to be able to be, if not the first, one of the first to publicly congratulate you for achieving that because that is an awesome place to attain. Your ascendancy in this space with this book is so meaningful because I didn't expect to adhere or your for your experience to adhere so and align so closely with mine. Having 
read the introduction where you talk about being in a white in tandem with white women in white spaces and feeling like you were shrinking based on your interaction with them is I don't know how that cannot be every woman of color's experience in corporate, in organizations. I found that so compelling because even with you being non-Black, you are validating my experience of what it is to be Black, Indigenous, woman of color in white spaces. And I think that transparency is the antithesis of white supremacy. I love the fact that you called out names, you called out organizations, because that is something I do in the space that I am in. I have challenged and confronted the white benevolency that really doesn't show up for me in the Los Angeles domestic violence space. Women who are quick to offer through words help, but when you accept it, they shrink back. They don't show up. They don't respond. And I take every opportunity to call it out in the way that you've done with this book. And I think that this book, it is everything that we need in this moment right now with relation to gendered politics and with relation to platforming Black, Indigenous, women of color, our issues, along with the racial justice movement. Because like Terry has a spouse, gender is just being left out of the conversation. And when we talk about the Me Too movement being hijacked by elitist, celebrated white women and leaving out our experiences of gender violence that go beyond sexual assault or sexual harassment, which isn't necessarily lethal. Whereas violence against women can be lethal. I just wanted to congratulate you for your ascendancy in this space because it is what we need. It is what we need. We need our voices amplified and you are doing so much with the platform that you have. And I thank you. You know, it's, uh, it's hard not to be really, really deeply moved, Roman, by, by saying that. Because, you know, writing a book is ex- an extremely lonely thing. And the part that kept me going, because, I mean, there have nearly every sentence and every paragraph of the book is one that I've had to fight for in different ways and against different people. I never even thought that this, I never thought that this book would actually, even while I was writing it. And I didn't, I didn't really feel like it would get published because of the things that I was saying. But more than anything, the thing that kept me going was that I felt like I had no one ever expected me to have this platform and I feel a huge huge sense of responsibility toward the women who I've met working and living 
in shelters and the women that I left, you know, behind when I moved to America at, you know, I was 18. I felt that as someone who has somehow got to this point where I can kind of have the room to, or the platform to say anything at all, that I have to say these things. In, in terms of fulfilling my responsibility to all the women that I know and all many millions that I don't know who don't get a platform like this. So one, I feel like if, if a woman of color gets that platform, uh, for me, it is essential to say these truths. But yeah, I mean, it's really moving also as a fellow survivor. Those thoughts that you're not going to make it, that people are never going to understand you, that you are not going to be valued for who you are, that your story will just be a commodity for other people to make themselves look better. All of these things have been demons that I have fought and a lot of times there were many many times even while writing the book I mean it was almost physically and emotionally it was emotionally draining for sure but even physically it was draining because like I said I had to fight for what's in it when I told my agent this gentleman white man but you know he, he used to be my agent and you know, you would never, ever, 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 ever suspect him of any kind of racial bias or anything like that. But he looked at the proposal for this book and he was like, nope, nope, this is, this is just, this not, should not be a book. No one's going to buy it. You'll never get it published. Don't waste your time on it. This is a sort of a faddish argument even. And it all, I mean, it, those, it just, it really destroyed me because I felt like, you know, okay, I mean, I guess this is never, this is just me and it's never going to make it. And so it was just a very, very fortunate conversation with a friend who is white, a white woman who, where I managed to sort of cobble myself together again and then push for this book to, you know, get it through. But I hope that women can, whatever their background, can see that in the pages of the book. But, you know, I know where I come from. I know that I come from nothing. I had to fight for absolutely everything. And I had to leave a lot of things behind. And um, I'm just really grateful. And I really, really hope that the women out there who I know are, are going through this and the white women who truly are authentic in their desire to be allies, I hope they can see that in the pages of the book. My last question, and it's quick. How do, because when I read the chapter, Honor Killings, FGM, and White Supremacy, I found myself guilty as a Black woman in America who knows the oppression of sexual violence going back to the transatlantic slave trade coming forward. I found myself falling into that, <gasps> oh my gosh, honor killings, 
because I did equate honor killings with the femicide and familicide that is happening in this country. And I didn't see it through a lens of necessarily, oh, those brown people over there. But I didn't have the context as a Black American for the cultural relevance and the deeply entrenched cultural value of FGM, I found myself being guilty of some of the things that you pointed out with relation to white feminism and imposing itself in this performative benevolence and white savior complex. How do we as BIPOC women abstain from these white ideologies? How do we become the allies that women from these countries need? Well, first of all, I want to say that I do think that Black Indigenous women here in the U.S. have faced more discrimination and have carried in my view, the biggest burden in this fight. I think that that is, it's necessary to acknowledge that because I don't think this book could exist if those spaces weren't open to me, those spaces that have been created by BIPOC women to discuss this, to, I mean, to publish about this. I mean, if it weren't for Kimberly Crenshaw, I wouldn't know that there was sort of a a historical and theoretical legacy that I could draw from. And that is the legacy that I draw from, is the Black feminist within the context of the U.S. But I also wanted to show Black Indigenous women in particular how the, what I call the technology of white supremacy that oppresses them within the United States is the same technology that is then replicated all over the world today. So it, it, it begins from here, and then it's taken to all these different places. And then you have culturally coded crimes, like I said, honor killing, FGM, etc. But they're presented as sort of crimes unto themselves, and they're not connected to similar crimes happening in the white and Western world. So that was a very intentional move on my part in writing the book, because I I felt otherwise that Black, Indigenous people in the U.S. felt only a very tenuous connection to the oppression that is experienced by historically and currently by, say, you know, Afghan women who have been, whose country has been bombed out allegedly on the, at the pretext of, of taking feminism to them and liberating them, right? So, so that, was, that was one very big goal that I had with this book, is that people should see that. Because I saw that connection, right? Because, you know, I have this sort of unique journey that comes from Pakistan, and then I've been in the U.S. and worked uh, in, you know, uh, Black-owned law firms and on civil rights law and, and all of that. So I wanted to bring those together for people. And I wanted also then, I mean, what you're recognizing is essentially that America 
takes in everybody and then makes everyone an American exceptionalist. So that if you, if I want to feel American, I can have disdain for these crimes that happen over, quote, over there, and they don't happen over here. And it's a very sort of clever move to make Americans inure them to the fact that they experience on a daily basis the same levels of brutality and violence and, you know, divisiveness that other people do in, in other countries. But, but it is true that we have to be careful. Uh, it is true that you could be a Black American and you can have these views that are sort of propagated by this larger white establishment because they want you to identify with them rather than identify with the oppressed, wherever they may be. And I think that it is very crucial. Like you said, we are at a transformative moment. But we have to connect these struggles that are happening within the United States, uh, Say Her Name, uh, Black Lives Matter, all of these efforts. We have to connect them to the international discourse because what white America does to black women and black men, white America also goes and does to Afghans, to Iraqis, Pakistanis, etc. So, yeah, I, I... I really hope that people will will see those connections and be able to use sort of the fodder that I'm trying to provide people to to then be able to take it to conversations that they're having in their own lives and within their own contexts and be able to question on the basis of that fodder, you know? So, yeah. Thank you. So... We're at the point of the conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions that we call the engendered questionnaire. Okay. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Everything. I think our inability to have truly embraced and then confront the extent of the violence that we have in our culture is what is leading to tragedies day after day after day. You know, you're listening to this podcast, but if you go to any domestic violence shelter in your community, you will see the extent of the harm. You will see the casualties. Because, you know, we talk, we learn about the high-profile cases, but the images that are seared into my memory are images of, you know, for instance, a little, uh, a, a little kid walking into a shelter with his school project half finished because, you know, this incident happened and he thinks that he can finish it at the shelter. It's, it's the everydayness of this, the fact that we've made it so entirely acceptable that is leading to in my view, an ever-increasing appetite for violence, for subjugation, for oppression. And I think BIPOC women, women of color, have, they have lived that. I don't know a BIPOC woman who hasn't lived that, honestly. So that's what's at stake. It's those kids walking into shelters with their homework half done and 
the fact that they've placed trust in a system that we all know is going to betray them. It's not going to get them to a place where they're whole again. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is what I see as an openness within newer generations of people, younger Americans, and you know other young people around the world who are willing to confront their own complicity in oppressive structures. We're all oppressors on some level. I mean, I think uh, you know one of the the Romans question about you know I I found myself of what she thought when she was reading the FGM and honor crimes chapter. We're all oppressors on on some level. I mean, I now have this platform to some extent, and I'm sure I am lapsing in some way or another in in being truly just to the people I talk about. So, you know, the hope is in that openness, in to have that conversation, to not just prescribe compassion and empathy. I get very annoyed at books that do that because it this is a political struggle. It's not going to be won through, I mean, empathy and compassion are great, but that's not going to win this. And of course, I take hope from the fact that at least somehow we have gotten to the point where we can have this conversation and we can talk about, you know, this issue that I've written about in the book, the off-white feminism and what it's done how it's ravaged the feminist movement, how it's made us unable to make the advances that otherwise would be, would entirely be within our capacity. So I I, I take hope in, in, in that possibility, in the conversations that I hope that will occur because of this book and because of the work so many advocates are doing and so many women like you who are investing so much in these collectives, because it's very hard work uh, bringing people together. And the fact that you're trying to do it is, I mean, it to me, it's, it's great virtue, because it requires overcoming your own trauma as a BIPOC woman, and then entering into this space where you see the possibilities, but other people don't necessarily see them. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based <laughs> violence and oppression? And you don't have to answer all of them. <laughs> <laughs> that, actually, that's my next book, but no. I mean that we can really look at how we are complicit in systems of oppression. I think that it's time for all of us to do that self-analysis and to engage in that conversation with ourselves. Because once we open ourselves to that, it's only then that we can then make connections and and solve larger problems. I mean, you know, the white woman has to ask herself as she's sitting on the board is that, why don't I ever vote for what this black woman suggests? Why don't I ever vote for it? Yeah, because in that context, you can say, well, it's the issue. It's not her. It's this and that. The thing is that we, there's always excuses like that. 
and you talked for instance about you know the book begins obviously with this with this description of of me attending this white get together and feeling like i'm shrinking and if there was one thing i wanted white women in particular to take away from this is that women of color bipoc women experience that every day and all the time we are constantly uncomfortable we're constantly having to file our edges and make ourselves we are constantly quote unquote having to act white to have to be in that feminist space so i'm sick of acting white you know i don't want to do it anymore i don't want my kid i don't want my daughter to do it i don't want any of you to do it or your kids to have to do it so so that's what i want if white women take away one thing it's that it's the fact that they may be uncomfortable reading the book but all of us bipoc women are uncomfortable constantly constantly you know as we make our way through the society and and through life well thank you so much for joining us today rafia and thank you to roman for a fantastic job as a guest co-host i'm so happy that you were able to be part of this conversation both of you and i would look forward to continuing it thank you terry this has been my honor and my pleasure and rafia you are the hero that we were waiting for <laughs> <laughs> no, I hope that this book empowers a lot of other heroes and heroines. But I want to thank you so much for very very thoughtful questions that really allowed me also to to talk perhaps for the first time really about my personal struggle in writing this book and how much it means to me to hear that that I was able to that the connection between the oppression for instance like I said women around the world you know brown and black women around the world feel to the plight of black indigenous and bipoc women in the United States how we are connected and um just really really grateful and thankful and you know hoping that the book gets out there to as many people as it can thanks for listening to this episode of engendered the show is sponsored by can do it qna a peer based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice community and learning you can join can do it qna for free at qna.kanduit.com I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast@gmail.com at with your questions.